You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast, where we're talking about Bitcoin and current events in congressional policy. Today, we have Jason Brett, who's a returning guest and expert in Bitcoin law and policy. Jason works with numerous congressional staffers and members of Congress, helping to draft bills and policies that might become future laws. He's here today to help us understand what these future bills might look like and why they might be important to understand. So without further delay, here's my interview with the thoughtful Jason Brett. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. So like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Jason Brett. Jason, we've had you on the show before. I ran into you down there in Miami and um, we just casually bumped into each other. And man, I was so pumped to see you. And what was the first thing I said to you? Um, let's record. You were, <laughs> you were, yeah, let's, I was just thinking I needed to talk about something with government. So here you are. <laughs> no, we, I bumped yep. into you. And the first thing I said to you is we need to record something. And here we are, what? Uh, like three days later, four days later, uh, recording something. So uh, you have your ear to the ground on everything that's happening in D.C., on the Hill, policy-related, and boy, oh boy, there's a lot going on here. Um, specifically, the, I think the really big news that recently came out was this um, uh, executive order that came out of the White House and talk to us about what that is. Oh, you know what? Before we get into that, before we get into that, I'm sorry, I I jumped the gun. What are some of your what were some of your takeaways at the conference? Yeah, so um, it was great to hear. I think people's takes in regards to um, understanding the implications about the Federal Reserve and what it means with inflation and how more and more like. For me, the tipping point was like the Peter Thiel speech. Yes. When, you know, you had this sort of notion of the pushback against Wall Street and the recognition that like, you know, it's actually okay to like Bitcoin and to push back about, you know, what big money interests uh, thinks of it. And then the Senator Lummis speech, which I thought was really, really inspiring. You know, she's one of the co-sponsors of this legislation we're all hearing is coming any day soon. That would be the first major bipartisan uh, legislation in the Senate. Um, I, I caught up with some of her staffers at the conference and, you know, they reminded me like Wyoming was the first place that really started setting out regulations for yeah. this. Yeah. And it's no surprise that we have a senator from Wyoming and how lucky are we to have that who's helping to shepherd through, you know, whatever regulation we might look at. So I was really encouraged. It was... <laughs> really big. I mean, there were a lot of people there. I, I don't know about you, but it was like uh, a lot of people. It was like, wow, are we, we're really arrived. I mean, for me, having the bowl there from the mayor, you know, that's that like, was so okay. cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was with you. The, the amount of people there, it was crazy compared to the previous year. Um, do you know what the numbers were? Was it like 20, 30,000 people? Um, it, it was somewhere in yeah. the ballpark, right? Yeah, according to the Wall Street Journal, they said there was twenty five thousand people that came through. So, which is twice the number from last year. Yeah, there was there was a ton, and the side rooms. I mean, there was some 
pretty incredible conversations. I was amazed at uh, Aaron Rodgers, Serena Williams. I didn't even know they were coming, and I didn't see any type of announcements that they were coming. And I just remember like kind of walking through and seeing it, seeing them on the stage. And there were some others that were just kind of like mind blowing. I was like, wow, this is this is unbelievable that they're literally coming to these events to talk about how important Bitcoin is and the freedom that it uh, provides to the individual and, and whatnot. I mean, it was, it was fascinating. So cool. Okay. So back to the, <laughs> back to where we were at when we started um, the executive order that came out of the white house. What, what was the impetus of this? Or like, what were you hearing was the impetus of this? Yeah. So there was um, a few things that were leading up to Biden deciding to release some information about, uh, the executive order. And um, I think a lot of it had to do with what really sparked it was back in October, the US met with 30 other countries. And the main topic for the summit was all about ransomware. So if you think about it, ransomware happens for a lot of reasons. And we all know a lot of it is like not strong cybersecurity. And there's lots of elements to what takes place in a ransomware. But I think one thing to maybe acknowledge is it is a new kind of crime because usually they're extorting Bitcoin. Mm. And because Bitcoin is what is extorted from a ransomware situation, the White House felt it was a threat to national security. And what's been a little hard to track is first, the White House was saying it's all coming from China. And then all of a sudden, when Russia was ready to invade Ukraine, they're like, well, all this stuff's coming from Russia. So it's sort of like, who's, where is it coming from? You know, um, and so, but but if if in fact the new sort of method of warfare, right, is this is through these ransomware, the attack on colonial pipeline, you know, at least the way our country is structured, that's like national security's job to try to address. Now, how they address it is a whole different thing. I mean, I know I don't have to tell you, like after 9-11, there can be overreactions and things like that. And I think generally the narrative of somehow that it was like Bitcoin's fault um, was problematic. So you sort of had the, con- the, then you had this idea of sanctions as soon as the Ukraine-Russia conflict started. And at that point, you'll notice that's very soon after that started is when the White House order was issued. And that because not only do you have the ransomware issues from Russia, but in their mind, I think you saw now saw the sanctions. And just a few days after the White House executive order, uh, OFAC, Office of Foreign Assets Control, put out um, that, you know, virtual currency, digital currencies, the same as fiat currency regarding sanctions. There's all the debates about the exchanges and what kind of roles they needed to play. There was calls from the, um, you know, Ukraine about doing sanctions against Russian, you know, from cryptocurrencies. So at that point, I think you're, you're seeing it where the, the, the national security lens has caught the most focus. Um, but there's been others that have been leading up to it, one of which is the most concerning thing I have and why I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you about it today, Preston, is the uh, issues that they're focusing on regarding the potentials for climate change as a result of using proof of work systems mm-hmm. and the, the attention that they're paying to that angle. Did that did that kind of come out after the whole Chris Larson thing? Do you think that this is something that was um, instigated by maybe Ripple and some of these billionaires that um, have been the beneficiaries of these of these pre mines? Yeah, it could be um, because I think when you look at the 
executive order. And then a little bit after the executive order, there was a request for information that's been issued by the White House Office of Science Technology Policy, OSTP, um, that's asking very specific questions that I feel like somebody who maybe didn't like Bitcoin would want to ask. Because one of the areas that it's focusing on is, you know, do do we need to just move on to other consensus mechanisms? Like, mm. you know, we need to sort of proof of work is old, so let's put it off to the side. And now we need to look at different ways of, of consensus mechanisms, which is like, like we're already in like the fifth or sixth inning in that thinking when we're still, we got to yeah. go all the way back to the first of which one is really providing the security that we need. Um, you know, but what, what concerns me, and, and again, there's this request for information that anybody in the public can respond to, to this, this White House office. It's part of the executive order, which is a question about, is it really going to have climate impacts? It wants evidence. It does give us an opening because it does say if, if you have any evidence to show that uh, Bitcoin uh, actually helps, you know, the environment, they want information that's both going to refute and, um, you know, support that claim. But um, look, I'm, I'm not answering your question straight. I, I'm sure it was Chris Larson. I've seen Chris write articles in The Hill uh, that have taken point blank aim at Bitcoin, have talked about, uh, and I'm talking about like op-ed articles that really only congressmen read that talk about how when China was the dominant miners, they could just change the Bitcoin you know, ledger anytime they wanted to. So it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. And this is public. This is not like me calling out Chris Larson. It's right there with with consistent claims. I can't think of any other like blockchain protocol precedent. And it's really kind of sad that has taken such aim at Bitcoin the way Ripple has. Yeah. And when you look at what they did at the SEC too during this whole fight, where they keep turning it back to like comparing themselves to Bitcoin, it's really it's unfortunate. I mean, Ethereum's rough. The other ones are rough, but like. Ripple really strikes right at the heart of like what Bitcoin's about. It's unfortunate. You just look at um, the lack of evidence behind this of of their claims, and it's just laughable. Um, how can you create a money without there being like real work, or or a pegged money uh, without there being real work to it? So quite concerning. Uh, the, but back to the policy, right? So. This timing of, of that kind of came out. This was not part of the original executive order, correct? Like this was um, this was like two days later or a couple days later after the executive order. And it, I think you said that it came through the Office of Financial Asset Control. Is that right? Yeah. So that was and that had to do with the sanctions. Um, so hmm. it was literally as we got to that weekend, we had um, uh, both uh, FinCEN that made it very clear uh, about how banks and cryptocurrency firms need to be very aware if they hold a money, you know, services, money, money service business license um, need to enforce sanctions against Russia. And um, the OFAC made it clear. It was already kind of listed that way, but they just reinforced if people had questions. They said, if you're using virtual currency, that's also a way of um, breaking sanctions. So you have to make sure, and this goes all the way back to Venezuela, by the way, in 2018 with Donald Trump, when he was president, um, we had sanctions against, if you remember the Petro uh, currency backed by oil, didn't really go anywhere. But in principle, because I remember talking about that, that, that means like if you had a Petro on your 
you know, in your hand on your phone, you try to spend that or use that in any way, you're breaking sanctions. So cryptocurrencies really changed the paradigm. Bitcoin's totally changed this paradigm now about how sanctions are enforced. I mean, theoretically, if what they were saying about Venezuela is true, if El Salvador has a fiat currency that's technically Bitcoin, does that mean that if you and I are spending Bitcoin, are we somehow breaking sanctions if we had sanctions against El Salvador? So it really opens up a lot of questions, right? Like, how do you know if you're sending something to somebody in Russia or not with, with cryptocurrency? Um, it's, it's, it also assumes that people are really actively using cryptocurrency to break sanctions. I don't know that really the evidence is in yet. And that's been one of the things I think that needs to be further examined. But it was very clear that with these offices quickly after the president's order doing these things, it was it was clear there was some top-down type stuff that had to happen as a result. I'll tell you, Preston, that executive orders usually are not like this. They're not usually studies. I was really worried what sometimes the executive order might come out and say, hey, we're just banning Bitcoin mining. You know, like usually it's an order. So like the fact that they were getting this study is good. The question is, what's the next executive order going to look like in six months while these studies go on? So that's why everyone needs to pay attention to how all these agencies are reacting and, and what the direction is, because um, this this could have really a foundation for the way the U.S. treats the, you know Bitcoin for the next 10, 15 years. All right. So back to the uh, executive order. So in the executive order, um, there were three main parts to it. The first one was to the uh, to develop a central bank digital currency or a CBDC. The next one was to protect against systematic risk within the global economy. And then uh, the third one was more on the illicit uh, finance or transactions and uh, maybe a national security risk for some of these things. So take us through each one of these. Let's start off with the uh, central bank digital currency what was it really kind of pointing out in the executive order? And then how about just like some of the thoughts on various members within the Hill and, and within Congress on how they're interpreting some of this stuff? Yeah, um, Preston, I think that uh, CBDCs right now are considered the way that Janet Yellen and Powell at the Federal Reserve want to combat Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Um, Janet Yellen just gave a speech last week that said, you know, we really like parts of this technology and a lot of people in the Bitcoin space are really positive about what she said. But I think it's sort of like picking and choosing because they think they want to use like a distributed ledger for like a CBDC, but really it's going to be centralized. Um, the push on this is really from the international perspective. Um, they want to keep the dollar as uh, a way to enforce sanctions and benefit from its status as a global reserve currency. Um, and there is the threat, right, that it could go away, whether through stable coins. That's why stable coins have gotten so much attention, right? Because it's the equivalent of a US dollar. And you know, the bigger question here is how as we move to a digital economy that's really been accelerated by COVID-19. And that's why I think all of this is coming to fruition so fast is what do we have in the digital environment and the digital economy that's growing that can maintain the status of the US dollar. So, um, you know, it's really going back to the playbook of the fiat currency that we've used in this country to do regime change and so many things and to try and apply it electronically. You know, when you talk about the Hill, it's interesting, right? Because there's a few different viewpoints on this. Uh, 
Some folks on the Republican side, Congressman Tom Emmer specifically, and now Ted Cruz have endorsed a bill that would have it CBDCs only be used the way it's used now, meaning no direct contact from the Federal Reserve right with retailers. It would have to go through some either, you know, fintech companies or banks and then be dispersed, you know, after that. Um, there was another bill that was introduced mainly by progressives um, that talks about e-cash or electronic currency. It was called the e-cash act. This one actually is created to specifically not give the Federal Reserve any powers to create some anonymous aspects of cash, but in digital form. And it tasks the U.S. Treasury with doing that. So it's interesting, right? Because the Treasury really is the one that printed notes before we sort of had the Federal Reserve involved. And, you know, that has a lot to do with not wanting to... Um, some of that has to do with, I think, the MMTers, right? The you know modern monetary theorists and printing a lot of money and being able to do that in digital form. Um, so it's a little suspect, but it is interesting, right? That to me, both on the Republican side, the Democratic side, the one thing that's really being pulled out is people's fear of the CBDC. And I think the number one fear is like privacy. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I had a CBDC on my phone, I mean, I already think the government listens to everything I say anyway, but like... They're going to know everything I spend money on. You know, I mean, exactly. I just don't think that, I think people just don't have that either. They don't care or just people don't have the confidence that the government won't actually be watching what we're doing. So it's a big that's the biggest hurdle for a CBDC, I think. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at ndtco.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's ndtco.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance 
to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. I agree with you. I think the privacy on it is extremely concerning. I think the other piece too, so people might look at the dollar right now and be like, it's already digital. How, what's like, what's the difference? And so the answer would be, well, it's a distributed ledger, right? But like, who's going to run the full nodes on these things? I know I'm not going to run a full node on, because <laughs> it's not like you're actually going to be the ones validating the transactions. They're going to still have them on their own centralized server. They're going to still be controlling the ledger. So um, what's... What's actually different other than uh, them consolidating the clearance to an immediate, uh, you know, they, they're going to do immediate clearance like a lot of these different tokens, but the the ledger and the processing of that isn't going to be distributed. It's going to be centralized, like completely centralized. And if I was going to go one step further, I'm sorry to talk so much here. But this is, this is, I think, so misunderstood on the Hill. And if I was going to go one step further, it doesn't solve the issue at hand. And the issue at hand is, is you need a peg. Like the whole reason the whole world's falling apart right now is because there's no peg. And, there, and we're in a race between nation states to debase our currency, to, to engineer what appears to be GDP growth. But all, it is, all, all that's happening is you have a race of adding more fiat units into the system. So a central bank digital currency with a controlled central ledger doesn't solve any of that. They're going to be still debasing it, right? So it doesn't solve anything other than you lose um, your, your, pro- your property rights and it's much more surveilled than the existing uh, digital currency that's already out there, right? It's like the worst of what's already in existence, yeah, you know how how can we educate people on the hill about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to a little bit. You know, like one of my favorite sayings from Albert Einstein is like, you know, if you have a more complex problem, you can't solve it the way you solved the first problem. Yeah, and that's kind of where we're at right now. And I think that's the right way to explain it is, you know, we have this fiat currency, and if you try to apply what worked for Bitcoin with, you know, a CBDC. It's going to be very open. You're not going to, you're going to be just where you were before with the problems that, you know, we have with the Federal Reserve. And and I think that at this point, you know, explaining to people on the Hill, like even, you know, wherever you are to your congressman or congresswoman or senator, you know, having an opportunity to talk a little bit about Bitcoin and just explaining what Bitcoin is and how it works and how you see it as hard money, just like gold or any other, you know, precious metal. I think explaining that notion, explaining it could literally back the U.S. dollar, um, I think is something to, to start to have that conversation with because Bitcoin really has some positive momentum on its side right now. And I think the more people talk about it, 
you know, the one thing that's nice about this country is we have voters that can sway the politicians. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, you know, that's what I'd really encourage everybody. And I've done that before. People have asked me and I brought them to meet with congressmen or congresswoman, as I typically do with policy. And I, I help explain what the message they're trying to get across. And I also try to coach people on who the right person in the office is to talk about, because you can kind of talk to anybody. But if you don't talk to the person that has the portfolio around cryptocurrencies, then it's probably not going to go anywhere. Um, but I think that having those just basically explaining what Bitcoin is, that it's this decentralized form of money. And that, you know, if the U.S. tries to create a, a CBDC on a central ledger, um, that's really copying what China's doing, right? Because exactly, China's already really done exactly that. exactly what it is. So that's the danger of that, of thinking it that way. And that's what I mean when I say we have to figure out a new solution. And I, I you have a lot of smart people on your show. I think that's going to be the, a great, fascinating thing that's going to have to be figured out over the next several years is what is the, what is it pegged to? And I mean it. Is it pegged to Bitcoin? What do we peg our dollar or units of currency in this country to? So it's more substantial than, I mean, look, fiat money decrees, we've proven, I think in our lifetime, it does not work. So, yeah. And we're, we're already seeing the tech. We're seeing some tech. I don't, I don't know if this is, if this is rooted in good fundamentals, to be quite honest with you, but I'm going to talk about it. So like Luna is buying up Bitcoin and they're creating a synthetic stable coin dollar that the backing, instead of taking US dollars and putting them into a bank account to back each one of the tokens, they're actually doing it synthetically. And I'm not an expert on how they're doing that synthetically, but the treasury is Bitcoin, which is fully auditable. Um, and then they're adjusting the issuance of the tokens for the stable coin based on the the change in the price of Bitcoin um, but Bitcoin is sitting there in the treasury to to peg it. Now, there's a lot of people in the Bitcoin space that are very leery of this, to be quite honest with you. I'm a little bit leery of it because I don't fully understand um, how they're able to perform that without slippage over the long time, uh, over the long term. I'm, a, I'm quite suspect of it, but I do find the idea very interesting and um, potentially threatening to anybody trying to stop stable coins if if this idea and this is possible via mathematics to implement something like this, do you think people on the Hill are talking about any of that type of stuff? Are they aware of that type of technology for most uh, members in the Senate and the house? No, no. And I mean, you have a hard time differentiating Bitcoin from blockchain still. I mean, the, the, this is a very a small subset of of a hundred different issues that the congressmen and senators face. Now, I will say, with things like uh, there was a recent bill on uh, El Salvador and their use of Bitcoin that sort of forces them to kind of get more knowledgeable about it. But um, going that deep, you know, some of the staffers will understand that, but that that's really a little too far uh, of a reach. People in industry, though, like you said, can can analyze it. Um, the problem is the minute you start talking about a stable coin and then you get to the type and then you try to explain how Bitcoin could back it. It's just, it's, it's advanced calculus at this point. They're, they're still on the basic math. And, and I think that's, that's one thing that people really re need to recognize. In fact, Preston, one of the things that's been happening is because Bitcoin is growing. I mean, this is a new ball game from where we were five years ago. There are mainstream lobbyists, like from Brownstein and other the top lobbyist shops in DC are going to the Hill now talking about this stuff. 
The fact is they can't get past what Bitcoin and blockchain are. So what they're doing is they're bringing the people who are like the programmers with them to the meetings and just letting them explain it. And then the programmer goes so deep, it goes right over the people's heads. So we actually need to not just educate people on the Hill, but these top paid lobbyists, bring them into like a class with you and help them understand, look, this is just the basics, you know, get Mm -hmm. some understanding around the basics of technology, because you know better than anyone that the, if you start to go too deep in this stuff, oh, yeah. you lose people. And it's like you have five or 10 minutes most of the times with with people who are influential in their decision making, then they're on to the next meeting. So, yeah, yeah. Um, on this on the systemic risk piece, um, what are your thoughts in the executive order on that particular part? Well, I'm glad you asked me because uh, I get a chance to maybe tell you my Bitcoin origin story at this oh, point. Oh, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Since it's all about <laughs> all about systemic risk. Um, so I was a, um, a regulator at the FDIC in 08 and 09 during the financial crisis. And um, that's really what opened my eyes up to the idea of something maybe like Bitcoin, but I didn't discover it until 2016 when I started working in the industry. But um I was in the capital markets and finance division starting in the summer of 08. And I saw all the banks fail, the IndyMac bank failure. I was on a Bloomberg machine figuring out everything with um, Wachovia, Washington Mutual. It was really scary. I remember looking, it would look like the matrix on my Bloomberg screen with some of the banks falling. And I had this one guy take me in this office, this older guy. He sat me down and was like, Jason, have you ever been through a financial crisis? I'm like, no. He's like, well, you're in one. So just relax, do your job, stay focused, you know, and, and we'll get through it. But then then what really opened my eyes to the idea of systemic risk had to do with AIG. Because when I started looking at AIG, we started looking at the different countries that it was exposed to, uh, the amount of exposures of what would happen if AIG failed right after we said Lehman Brothers could fail. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was really realized how these products, you know, if you have a concentration of risk, it really creates a risk that can just shut down the whole system mm-hmm. that forces the taxpayer then to bear the burden, you know, of that cost. But the reason I'm so, so then the other part of it for me was realizing that there really is nothing behind the U S dollar. We all come to accept that now in the Bitcoin community, but back then it wasn't really an original concept. And I'm watching like all these banks fail and I'm realizing that the plan that everyone was going to in the government was, we have to, you know, shore up what public relations look like for the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like, hey, here's some gold or here's something reliable. It was like, Preston, let me convince you, keep your money in the bank. Like, and that's what they sent folks out to do was to these people from the, you know, Great Depression who had seen their grandparents lose it all, showing up with a suitcase, wanting to just walk out of the bank with like their life savings. And the job of the government was, you don't have to do that. Your money's safe. Don't put it under the mattress. I mean, and and when I realized that was like the plan, and then I started tracking what the Federal Reserve was doing with this balance sheet, which was part of my job too. I just thought something's wrong here. You know, something's mm-hmm. not quite right. And that was sort of my like the you know seed that was planted. I didn't have the benefit of realizing the Bitcoin paper and what came out at that point. But in 2016, I, I learned about Bitcoin, and I haven't looked back since. I love this space so much because now I'm accumulating Bitcoin. And for me, it's just, it's sort of like a second life for me of listening to everybody in this space. I feel especially the same all the millennials way. learning. I'm the same hearing, way. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, that's like, so the systemic risk piece really bothers me because 
there's this narrative now that somehow cryptocurrencies could be a systemic risk. This isn't this isn't real estate, right? With people coming up with synthetic CDOs, that if it something happens, the whole market seizes. Like, who's really going to notice if our Bitcoin goes down? Like, we'll care, but it's not going to cause a systemic risk. Like, that's a really, I mean, to me, a systemic risk should have a much higher bar than something that's like an innovative technology. So, you know, I know they're exploring it. I know they're worried about how it might impact the markets. Listen, at some point, you're, you know, with the, the Luna stable coin and others, we might see all of this as, as the new financial markets. So then yeah. it's not a matter of what systemic risk there'll be. You know, systemic risk should really be like renamed, like how we're going to kick out all the incumbent banks <laughs> and will be the new, the new show. It's not really, it's a risk to their business, but it's not a risk to the system. Um, how about the illicit financial activity and the um, national security piece that was in the executive order? What do you think was really kind of driving the impetus of this? Yeah, you know, um, Chainalysis did a report and and it showed that the, the number's gone quite down as far as how much uh, uh, is a percentage of the overall uh, crypto economy is used for this type of illicit activity. And I really struggle with a lot of this myself because I did some reporting where I looked at what the um, Secret Service was examining because they're out of Department of Homeland Security. And I had numbers from 1% to up to 75% of the market. And the 75% number supposedly came from the FBI because someone gave it in testimony at a House hearing. But then when I went back to the FBI and I looked at it, it said no one could tell me where that number came from. Wow. So I was like, we have this range of like 75% to 1%. You know, I don't know if Chainalysis has it right with the less than 1%, but it the real question is, yeah, maybe it's like a few percent is part of this whole thing with the illicit finance. But I'm sorry, it's it's a new kind of money. It's a new value of money. You know, we don't have the ability in our current system of stopping, we try to stop bad actors from using money, but we can't. So I don't know what the expectation is of we're going to have a new form of money and, you know, maybe not the best advertisement for Bitcoin, but the idea that you can do tracing, you know, to figure out if something really bad has happened and follow where that went um, should, I think, give people more comfort about it, not less. Um, but the illicit finance thing, you have to remember back in 2013, um, the uh, FinCEN, you know, um, Financial Crimes Enforcement Unit from Treasury was the very first agency to chime in on this whole subject. And ever since then, there's always been this lens of looking at it from the, well, what if a terrorist took a hundred you know, dollars worth of Bitcoin and rented a U-Haul truck and ran it into a building or, you know, we have to stop every occurrence. And I think we've never really been able to pull away from that narrative, but with the executive order, it doesn't just capture that part. It's now capturing, you know, like we were saying before with the ransomware, um, that's really the concern, right? What, what if they try to do a shutdown of a colonial pipeline or anything? And obviously, you know, any other kinds of warfare, you know, would be obviously much more scarier. So this is what, what they're going to throw at us. We do have to figure out a solution to what do we do when we have these ransomware attacks from actors, whether it be North Korea or Russia, you know, how do we help the companies get out of those situations? I don't think not letting them pay in Bitcoin is the right answer. If, if there's a way out, then they need to have a way out. But right now, that's their biggest uh, 
their biggest concern. What, do you think it's fair to uh, say that they're much more concerned about stable coins and central bank digital currencies than they are about Bitcoin specifically? Do you get that sense? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I said that a long time ago. I thought stable coins are like, I called, uh, stable coins are like the new orange, you know, orange is new black, like stable coins is the new Bitcoin because it's representing a US dollar. And, you know, it's almost not fair when you think about the executive order, when we're talking here about like that, it's, uh, you know, maybe these three issues. I mean, Preston, this, this is executive order encompasses 20 different reports that over the next six months have to go to the white house, 20 different reports from 23 different federal agencies. So this is, this is a whole of government approach. Like this isn't, this is about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. This is about everything. And so for the next, you know, now it's like five months in, you know, there's going to be just the most amount of reporting ever on the space, you know, from these different agencies. Um, and you're starting to see the the hill pick up a little bit, like Senator Gillibrand and Senator Lummis that was at the um, Bitcoin conference, you know, um, Gillibrand said, look, I think it's great that the White House wants to do an executive order about this stuff, but if there's going to be, you know, real change, it's going to be a new law and you need lawmakers for that. You know, like there's a reason the White House does what it does, but then we have legislation. So she and I think Senator Lummis, they're planning to introduce what, you know, they've told us really just the name of the bill, which is the Responsible Financial Innovation Act. And then you had another senator, Senator Toomey, that just introduced last week a bill about stable coins and how it might have to go through OCC licensure, bank licensure. So these, you know, the senators are really starting to to stand up and say, you know, it's great you want to do all these studies, but we're going to dual track it because we're the ones that are actually going to make the laws. So we're going to start introducing what we think it's going to be because what you're really seeing is when you see, see an executive order like this, the writing, the handwriting is on the wall that like the White House is probably going to get involved in the kind of legislation they want to do. I mean, one of the biggest lobbyists on Capitol Hill is in fact the White House. So by the end of this year, we could see Biden administration saying, this is what we want to see. And so that's why you have all these senators laying down bills because it's going to be a big you know, uh, conversation, big discussion to figure out what it might look like. Uh, the prediction, to your point about stablecoins, the prediction on the Hill is the most likely first bill will be about stablecoins because of the concerns that they have in regulating stablecoins. Yeah, Caitlin Long does a great job of kind of describing why that's such a concern where it gets into the immediate clearance versus what the traditional system can do, which is a much slower clearing system. And when you're looking at how banks uh, manage their balance sheet, it, with with the assets and the and the liability mix that they've got to have for certain types of securities that they're holding, real estate that they're holding, and now dealing with digital assets that are clearing immediately, um, it it throws off the the um, the ability for them to kind of manage some of those ratios and and manage them in a way that is in keeping with a lot of their requirements. So. Um, it seems like that's kind of more of the driving factor of why this, and, and obviously just the pace at which this shadow banking and these these tokens that represent U.S. dollars is taking off, I think is scaring the heck out of a whole lot of people because we're talking, are we talking hundreds of billions at this point in stable coins? I think, I think we are. Um, but um, 
the, the one question I had for you when you were talking about that, as far as like Senators Gillibrand and uh, Loomis with their, their announcement that they're getting ready to make with their, with their proposal, how long is this going to take? So they're going to make that proposal. How long before you'd have the house and the Senate start voting on, on this stuff? Um, I mean, votes can happen very fast, you know, under certain circumstances, but I mean, you're probably looking more at like a next six month type of time frame, um, because so it could get voted on before the executive order even is the studies coming out of the executive order are even completed, or it could be, but it's that would be very that would be unlikely. Um, I think it might be in tandem with because the leading Democrats in the House and the Senate aren't really going to want to push forward with legislation if they're getting signals from the White House to hold off. Because mm-hmm. remember. Right now, we kind of have the tri-control. We still have the Democrat House, Senate, and presidents, all Democrats. So until they're sure they're kind of going to get what they want, they're also not want to like do something against the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, you know, you, you'll like what I think you'll see is you'll see these introductions. You'll see that they're going to really push to get the bill passed, but it, it might be a, a two-year, three-year thing. Sometimes this is how long it takes. The, the important thing about the Gillibrand um, Lummis bill is that's like, you know, when you have a negotiation, that's like they're laying out all their cards and I hear it's a massive bill. So, you know, it's sort of like, this is what we think we want. It's bipartisan. And then it's like everyone moving toward that. You ultimately need like, you know, Mitch McConnell to kind of say, okay, let's go through with this with Schumer. And then you need, um, Pelosi to kind of give the green light on it also for it really to reach that point where they're going to get a vote. I remember the last time we talked, there was another, uh, I believe it was a Senator who was, who was laying out a bill that really went into the definition of digital asset securities, uh, digital asset. Uh, I think it was just digital asset, which was basically Bitcoin and then everything else. What happened with that? Is, uh, did that just kind of go away or. Yeah, that's, um, uh, Representative Don Beyer. That's right. And, That's who it and was. Yeah. He, uh, he introduced that, similarly introduced that right after the infrastructure bill, right? So that was sort yes. of his way of introducing something that was very comprehensive. But uh, it's a little hard because, like, what he's doing is he's introducing a bill that really has to get voted on in a committee that he doesn't even sit on, right? So he's not in the House Financial Services Committee. Oh. It's very hard to kind of, you have to get it out of committee. So it's really like the, the, and so the bill hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't added any co-sponsors to it. Um, most bills don't get, you know, passed. The vast majority of bills don't ever become law, but what they can do is they, you know, when you actually get the bill that could be legislation that we're now starting to look like because of this executive order and cause of all this attention on the digital asset space is people will pick and choose. So they'll look to the buyer bill. They'll look to this Lummis Gillibrand. Okay, how are they doing things with, you know, Bitcoin versus the shit coins? What are they going to, how are they going to figure that market space out? And those, so those, these ideas are important because they can collectively end up being what the ultimate law, you know, will look like. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, 
Plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. So uh, Lynn Alden had a comment, and I'm going to paraphrase. I don't think this is exactly how she said it, but she she implied that there's a sea of money that's waiting to get into this space, and it can't get into the space until it gets bigger. And uh, and I think there's also a lot of money that can't get into this until there's better definition of uh, the policies and having bills in place that really kind of clearly define what this is and what this isn't. 
I think the one thing that has been very clear is that Bitcoin is treated as a commodity, at least from a tax implication standpoint. And that seems to be really sticking and not changing anytime soon or with any of the the bills that are being uh, getting ready to be introduced. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that idea, though. Yeah, I, I think regulation, uh, the clarity of regulation is what any business craves. And remember, I mean, I'm an ex-regulator, but as a regulator, it's not really about what you want the rules to be. It's about where is the market and what is the financial market going to look like? And so if it's going to look like this, you have to move toward understanding this marketplace and coming up with regulations that can work. One of the things that has hurt the U.S. is not having these clear regulations. Um, A really interesting uh, paper that I read was from the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, Dallas, and they did a study with Bank of International Settlements in in, in Europe, and they looked at whenever there's a news article that talks about the regulation coming and that there's going to be clear regulations for Bitcoin, that the price of Bitcoin went up. Whenever there was an article in the paper that talked about terrorist activities or illicit activities, the price would go down. And it was basically correlating news articles. This isn't a trading strategy, by the way, but I've actually looked at it. And it is really true. Anytime you talk about regulation, you actually start to see the price of of Bitcoin go up. But anytime you start to see big news about, oh, a terrorist threat or ransomware, it starts to come down. And I think that goes to Lynn Alden's point is that there's there's money on the sidelines, but they're they're not going to fully commit to it. And they feel like they have the regulatory clarity that they need. Um, and I think that that's really, it, it is, Bitcoin is definitely a commodity. It's been decided by the courts. The CFTC holds that. Uh, the SEC is not interested in Bitcoin anymore. That that ship has sailed. I mean, if you look at what Gary really? Gensler- Really? Really? Yeah. I think if you look at what SEC chair Gary Gensler sa- said in the very beginning was, you know, he said, I'm trying to remember what it was exactly, but basically paraphrase that Satoshi's invention is real. And I think we have to remember the, the, what that means. In other words, he's saying the fact that it created this distributed ledger system, the fact that it has this, this money that's used on it, right? You know, through cryptographic proof is, is, is a real invention. And, and that's the end of it. You know, it's a real invention. It's not something that's a security. It's decentralized. He made a joke during this, asking if, if anyone was Satoshi Nakamoto to stand up. I don't know about that, but but you know, in a sense, it, it's given to me. It, and Brian Brooks, the former OCC comptroller, who's now the CEO of Bitfury, yeah, um, followed up in a, in a hearing, you know, soon after that. And what he said was, when someone asked him, like, what is all this cryptocurrency stuff about? He said, look, there's Bitcoin, and then there's everything else. Bitcoin is an asset. A lot of people believe who believe in Bitcoin think it's a really good hedge against inflation, but it's, it's it's an asset class in and of itself. After Bitcoin, the way he described it was, which you and I all think of as shitcoins, but he said it politely to Congress, is a bunch of networks that people are betting on. You know, you think this network might do well or that network might do well, and people are sort of taking bets at that point. Um you know, Michael Saylor says it all the time. He thinks most of the other stuff are, you know, securities, and that's sort of the way the law is built. But um, I'm very secure that that Bitcoin's going to remain as a commodity for pretty much the rest of my lifetime in the U.S. And do you think that most of them kind of understand that if if they overregulate this, that they're just shooting themselves on in the foot on a global scale? Do you think most uh, elected officials view it that way at this point? Um, I don't 
think they worry about that too much. What they worry about, the theme is always like not on my watch. You know, the operate the the modus operandi is what can I do in my job today to make sure I don't end up on the front page of the Washington Post, you know, for something blowing up. So regulators are very risk averse, right? So they're not necessarily going to over-regulate, but like if you look at how slow things are moving in the banking system with taking cryptocurrency and, you know, you kind of need special permission to do stuff. And it's always, you know, and putting a lots of investor protection notes out from the SEC and, and enforcement, it's all just not wanting anything to blow up. That's like the first step. Um, you know where one of my biggest frustrations are in this space from a regulatory standpoint and from a policy standpoint is when you look at a lot of the lending platforms, um, they, they're they not uh, treating over-collateralization the same for retail customers as they are for institutional uh, customers. And so they'll have... You know, they'll have a person with one Bitcoin that can then go out and, and borrow against that that's over collateralized in a market that is mark to market uh, instantaneously. And if the price goes down, they're immediately liquidated in, in that loan. And there's there's no risk, right? There's no risk because it's traded 24-7 and it's over collateralized. But you have these institutions who have massive balance sheets that have a whole lot of exposure to traditional markets uh, that are also marked to market and they're under collateralized. And to me, it's just like this total recipe for disaster for retail that this is allowed that, that uh, in, in this pace, in this space in particular, that's a 24 seven market that's trading over the weekend and you have these institutions that have all these other assets on their books, on their balance sheets that are not 24-7, traded 24-7. I think it's just, it's a disaster waiting to happen. I'm, I'm just shocked that nobody's talking about that. And they're talking about all these other things. Um, and it's almost like they don't understand that that's happening or they don't care that it's happening because it's such a small um, uh uh, amount of the space. I'm kind of curious if any of this has ever come up in some of the conversations that you've seen and whether you even agree with with my complaint. Yeah, uh, you know, actually, it's interesting. Um, you should tune into a hearing that's going to come up in mid-May uh, in the Agriculture Committee because um, uh, the chairman, uh, Congressman Scott from Georgia, brought this up with uh, what FTX is applying for at mm. the CFTC. Mm -hmm. So uh, FTX US, the bought Ledger X, they're trying to get a real-time clearing, you know, for their 24-7, 365 uh, derivatives. And it'd be directly with customers. I think it'd be like every 30 seconds, they check your position and knock it down 10%. And it, it would be that way for everybody on their platform. Um, and the people that are objecting to it are folks like, uh, ICE and CME and all the traditional players that have these things saying, no, we need to stick to having, you know, the FCM model, have the futures commissions merchant aggregate everybody's assets into one, and then we'll figure out in three days what needs to be liquidated. Um, so you can have a nice Monday morning. <laughs> so it's like, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, what I think is great is that in this case, you actually have a regulator that's really very forward looking, um, it's, uh, the chairman, Rostin Benham of the CFTC that agreed to look at FTX us's proposal. 
he's changed it from 30 days to 90 days because it, it's very rare that you, you know, you have these changes in the way you do margin requirements. So it'd actually be pretty historic. And um, if you think about it now, I think it's about 97% of all uh, Bitcoin derivatives are overseas, right? They're all Binance and everything. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge market. So n- not to your point, not only is it these larger players that have this different standard for collateralization, but to bring some of that to the U.S. shore and have that marketplace, it's going to be so big and it's just only going to get bigger. It's going to be really important, you know, and it's really important to have those hedges available in the marketplace too, because um, that's what's going to help Bitcoin flourish in the U.S. The irony of, of what you said with the Ledger X piece is, for, from what I understand, Ledger X has uh, their their collateral requirements for all their options contracts, at least um, from from what I've seen personally, is that all everything is, is is posted right? If you're going to write an options contract, the 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 Bitcoin that you are putting up there actually has to be posted into an escrow. It's it's fully sitting there, right? Um, so for them to like turn that off and try to do the CME model where you know it's not happening on the weekend to me is is introducing more risk, um, which is different than what you know a little bit different than what I was describing earlier with some of these institutions on the lending side being under collateralized, but. Um, it just seems like there's so many per- perverse uh, incentive structures around derivatives in this space altogether that uh, if you're a big giant uh, institution, you just get treated a little bit differently than a small person who's actually probably way less riskier because of the way that they're posting things. Um, and it just it just seems like somebody needs to take a much closer look at it because my concern to be quite honest with you on the risk here, my concern is actually on a melt up. If Bitcoin starts blowing up and going to the moon, it probably means that uh, traditional markets are blowing up. And if these institutions are under collateralized and they've got all these other uh, counterparty risk type things on their, on their balance sheet in traditional finance, and it's blowing up while Bitcoin's going to the moon it tells me that their under collateralization is going to be a major risk for anybody that's that's not long, uh, and that's why that's where I think that you know if if the market has a downturn and Bitcoin's going down with it, uh, like what kind of like what we're seeing right now, I'm not nearly as concerned about the risk there. But I think if it starts separating and you get the the correlation to separate between the traditional markets and these markets, it's going to be a really bad situation for a lot of people that have uh, things lent out retail lent uh, specifically having things lent out. But anyway, sorry, we went in, in a very different no. direction. there. <laughs> no, no. Well, Hey, the, the positive side is Bitcoin would, would be very large and, you know, maybe a little bit of the Bitcoin could be used to bail out some of these really large institutions. <laughs> Kidding. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's not what this is about, right? It's no. about you know managing your risk, you know, being the sovereign individual, understanding that. And look, the whole problem, the whole premise of the 2008 crisis that's got us to where we are today are these large institutions, right? That took on much more risk than they should have, and you know, playing games with other people's money, and it's it's not okay. So we we got to change the system. Yeah. Um. How so? People say to me. Like, oh, the government's going to do this and that and everything else. And and one of the responses that I'll often provide to people is, as I say, there are states currently in the United States, like Wyoming and Texas, 
that have already gone out and aggressively set up policy and passed law in their states that have enormous protections to Bitcoin and digital assets, that if the federal government would start to overreach on some of the restrictions and set up things, and you're seeing exchanges like Kraken relocate into um, or, or locate themselves in states like Wyoming because of these policies that are the state policies that are there. Um, do you see this becoming a states versus federal government battle uh, and maybe that kind of forcing the hand for the federal government to take a, a much more lenient uh, take on the regulation of a lot of this stuff? Because if they don't, um, they're going to find themselves in a in a battle that they can't win against certain states. And do you see other states pulling that the, the Wyoming and the Texas model as a template into their own states to try to attract as much of this into their local domains? Absolutely. Um, whoever said, you know, states are laboratories for democracy, you know, is absolutely right. And I mean, thank goodness there's folks like Caitlin Long and others leading the charge and Jesse Powell at Kraken because they're making more headway than, than you realize. And it might be something that seems really, really insignificant, but like, with Wyoming, right? They have Kraken Bank now, and we have Kate, Caitlin's Bank. Um, I think it was Avanti, and now it's uh, Custodial Bank. Um, the, you know, Kraken just got its first uh, routing number with the Federal Reserve to work on ACH payments. Uh, that's a huge tectonic shift because Kraken applied for and got a Federal Reserve membership, right? Like you automatically become a Fed member. But then the Federal Reserve then takes a step back and says, well, we'll let you be a member, but we're not going to let you use our wire. We're not going to let you use our ACH until we decide the risk is clear. It's like, yeah, you can join this country club, but don't swim in the pool and don't, you know, like don't eat in the dining room. Just hang out in the front there and smile. So like with with that, though, that's really important because that's affecting, you know, a federal regulator, right? The Federal Reserve and how it's going to impact a lot of these companies as we move on to using maybe the ACH and wire systems um, as part of cryptocurrency more broadly. Um, and that's, that's, that's big. That's when you see a state has created its own type of bank. And now what's even more important is that that state uh, is now being reflected in probably what we're going to see in this federal bill from Lummis because she's from Wyoming. Um, so the states are absolutely critical. And look, I mean, Texas is like the best place on earth, I think, if you're going to be a Bitcoin miner and I've, I've, the way the governor's embraced it, they're setting up laws that, yeah, it, it really disincentivizes the federal government from coming down too hard. It, mo- it won't mean that they won't do it, but you know, you're going to have enough states that are finding the benefits of this technology and why they're leaning in. And absolutely, there's uh, you know states like Kentucky and others that are trying to do much more support where there's big growth in Bitcoin mining my home state in Pennsylvania, you know, we have uh, Senator Toomey and there's lots of mining happening across this state. It's really, um, it, it's a great moment. And I think that's what is uh, going to help us right now, because it, it does seem like we're a little too federally focused. And the truth is, like, when we look at something like Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, you're talking about adding jobs, economies, you know, real impacts to families. And that's that's what the most important thing is that the federal government sometimes loses sight of. I mean, we are a state and federal um, government. So yeah, absolutely. The states are right now really leading the charge. Um, The last question I got for you 
you and I had chatted previously about this idea that when when are we going to have the CFTC actually step in and defend Bitcoiners against these scam tokens that, that we know are out there? Uh, talk to us a little bit about this idea because you brought this up to me and I, I, I really liked how you were explaining this. Yeah, so um, if we decide that the CFTC is correct, which it's already been verified by law, <laughs> that Bitcoin is a commodity, that means that you know, for once, instead of the uphill battle where maybe we have a little bit of the underdog syndrome always as Bitcoiners, um, what we have to realize is that Bitcoin actually deserves some protections of its own. So instead of always just thinking, oh, Bitcoin's going to be banned or Bitcoin's going to be this, the truth is, if Bitcoin's a commodity, the CFTC you know, regulates the options and future markets around commodities. And also if there's fraud or any, anything that would relate to specifically affinity marketing. Um, and they speak to that. The CFTC talks about the dangers of if you try to pass one product onto another. And they have a lot of great safety tips on their websites for people like whether it's emails that you don't know or you know things that are really basic, right? But what that what that should tell you is, in a sense, is that there's a Bitcoin options and futures marketplace right now, right? They don't actually regulate Bitcoin itself. But if there are people who are creating things that pretend to be like Bitcoin, or perhaps say it's it's Bitcoin and shitcoin kind of together, and they're benefiting from that, and that confuses investors, or if you've lost money as a result, um, it very well could be considered a fraudulent scheme. And, you know, I know the the um, the altcoin community. I'll be polite. Thinks that that's not okay uh, to talk about stuff like this. But I'm not talking about it that you're secure. You're that with the SEC. Do whatever you want. Pretend to be a token. Do do. But when you associate it with Bitcoin, that's where Bitcoiners realize the CFTC actually has a role to protect it, just the way they would with cows, right? If I was selling you 100 cows, they were all healthy. There's no problem with that. But if I'm trading futures and options contracts, and there's cows you know, that are, are sick or they're, you know, fake cows, whatever we want to call them. Uh, th- that's a problem. That's, that's fraud. Um, and, and that, that shouldn't be taken lightly. So I think at, at some point we actually have a really good chance with the CFTC, uh, chairman right now, Benham with the way he defended the FTX proposal of realizing, yeah, we have a role to also protect Bitcoin, not just the investors, but the commodity itself. Hey, uh, Give people a handoff on you. You had mentioned earlier that on the ESG part that they opened it up to the public that people can go in there and make comments. Um, can you g- provide us a link and also kind of describe to people who are listening where they would be able to do something like that? Because I'm sure there's many people listening to this that would like to make comments or make referrals of important articles or uh, content that's already there that goes into an enormous amount of depth. I know Nick Carter alone probably has how many articles on this particular topic, um, but where can people find out more to, to make those contributions? Sure. So um, it's in our federal register. So what that means is it's a public notice from the White House and I can send a link later so everyone can check it out. Um, and it's the, a White House um, uh, looking for information about Digital assets, the energy implications of digital assets, and how you know climate change might happen as a result. And um, it, anyone can reply by May 9th. It gives you an email of who to reply to at the White House. 
You can write up to 10 pages with 11 plus size font or, or, or larger um, with any one or any of a different variety of subjects, including the protocol, meaning, you know, the type of protocol, is it proof of work versus something else and what your opinion would be on that. They're looking for evidence, you know, from a scientific standpoint of the impacts potentially of, of what we always hear, right, which is the FUD that we've, we now see in this order, but, but it's your chance to respond. And, and what I tell people is you have till May 9th to do it and you should respond yourself or get together with a group of friends, talk about it and write in a response, because this is kind of like one of those, if it was Brexit, or if you're deciding who the next president is and you want to vote, this is your chance to get on, you know, the public record with the white house, how you feel about whether Bitcoin uses too much energy or not and how it might influence their public policy. So if you don't take the time when we actually have this country that doesn't just ban cryptocurrency mining or ban Bitcoin, but actually says, hey, we're giving it a chance. We want science to rise to the top. You need to provide them that notice. So it's the White House opening its door for people everywhere to provide any kind of, of data that they want to, da- want to provide. And um, I think people should take advantage of it. This is your chance to do that. Jason, I know you're active on Twitter and you do Twitter spaces and things like that. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Is there anything else that you'd like to highlight or point people towards? Um, No, I think that that's, I mean, just continuing to follow the space um, with with what's happening in legislation. And um, I'll be putting out some information soon. I'm going to release uh, on a website to really try to consolidate all the issues that are happening in Bitcoin. So people just have kind of one place to go and, um, you know, maybe uh, I'll share that the next time I'm on, you know, your show as I have that more developed because there's just so much happening and and to keep track of everything is hard. So I'm going to try to make at least one sort of uh, location on the website, on the web for people to go to, to really keep up with regulations and law. I love that. Um, For people that are listening to this, uh, we have a lot of listeners from the future that that will probably be up on uh, that'll be an active website by the time a lot of people are going to listen to this. And so what I would tell you is put the um, on your Twitter handle, you have the ability to put a link in your bio. So whenever you do get it up, Jason, put, put that link in there. And so when people look you up on Twitter, you know, somebody listening to this six months from now or three months from now, go, go to Jason's bio and just click on that link and you'll be able to see I will be a visitor of that because I find the information that you consolidate and put out on this particular topic to be very interesting. So um, thank you for your time to do this. We've got to do this, you know, once a quarter, you know, twice a year or whatever. But I I really find this valuable to just kind of level set and see where everything's moving with, with respect to policy. So thanks, Jason. Thanks a lot for us. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. 
Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.